When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. So this is a true crime podcast. I would I feel very confident in calling it a true crime yes. podcast. There are scenes of, of grisly murder victims, uh, but I think... If you're an outside-in listener and that is something that that turns you off immediately, you're just not into true crime to begin with, I'd like to make the pitch. I'd like you to help me to make the pitch <laughs> that this is something that people will find interesting. Yeah, well, hang, just hang on to your hats for isotopes, man. That's <laughs> isotopes all I'm saying. I've learned out. so much uh, uh, reporting this about the, both the science of environmental isotopes and the science of genetics and DNA testing, which was another huge topic of, of interest in this case, um, part, how, how the case was partially solved, and and has also created this really interesting debate about uh, genetic privacy and uh, the role that police you know can have in all of that. So, who are you? Well, Sam, I'm Jason Moon. I have been in the newsroom here at NHPR for three-ish years, three-ish years now. I actually picked up a beat that you left behind when you moved to Outside In. I, oh, yes. Covering education. Yes. Um, so that's who I am. And lately I've been working on a, a show, you may, you may know a little bit about it, called Bear Brook. Uh, you've been helping edit some of the episodes of it. And we're launching it this week, which is very exciting and terrifying. <laughs> Where did this come from? How did it start? It came from like the most, usually what is like the worst place for a story to start, which was a press conference. Um, so we got a, a press release from the attorney general's office in 2015. This said, hey, we've got some new information about a cold case. And I just happened to be like standing in the room at the time when the email came in. So they were like, oh, go cover that. Well, so press conference sounds very glamorous, I think, to a lot of people. Maybe what is a press conference like if you're for those who are not reporters? <laughs> uh, often it's a pre, you know a pre-staged uh, kind of depressing event where people stand at a podium and read pre-prepared remarks that you already know what they're going to say and they already know what they're going to say and there's absolutely no element of spontaneity or surprise to it at Often, all. Often my favorite is when they've got the crowd behind them. Like oh, they, yeah. they've got all their supporters lined up so that when you take the picture, mm -hmm. it looks very impressive. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know anything about the case. Um, some people in the newsroom had and sort of like raised their eyebrows when they saw the release. So I was like, oh, that might be interesting. And then so I went and I covered it as a press conference and we, you know, we aired a short news item out of it that day. Um... But there was just a lot about it that piqued my curiosity. One were just the bare facts of the case, which you have four people dead in barrels uh, found near a state park, and we don't know who they are. And they're probably a family, a, a mom and three 
female children. And for, you know, 30 plus years, we've been unable to figure out their identities. And the other thing that really interested me was what they were announcing at that press conference in 2015 were the results of this new forensic testing that they had done on the remains, which was all about isotopes and these particular kind of isotopes that they're they're stable isotopes that vary from region to region based on the environment. And so they have this name, environmental isotopes. And apparently, you can use them to learn all kinds of interesting things about where someone lived based on the isotopes that are in their bones and in their hair. Well, you said the magic word, environmental. <laughs> so we found our in. This, I mean, how I'm could this not? I'm not just saying that because be? it's, that's right, I promise. <laughs> Yeah, if you're interested in in environmental isotopes and DNA, <laughs> then... sorry to, sn- sorry to snort, <laughs> but it's one of those sentences. If you're interested in environmental isotopes, <laughs> whoa, Simon. Yeah, me well, up. I well, see, I didn't know. You know, I had never even heard that phrase. Yeah, but, you know, but it really that really was one of the first things that piqued my interest about the case. Was like they can learn, they can tell that from just your isotopes. Um, you know, they can tell like, did you move? in the last few months before you died because you were exposed to different drinking water and and therefore it was depositing different types of oxygen isotopes in your bones you know they can t- they can your hair is as a timeline they can detect those movements because the hair near the root is different from the hair near the end and it's very like science fiction kind of stuff that was the initial interest and then while i was reporting and i think it's worth mentioning that that the case started to really come alive while I was reporting on it. So I started on it in 2015. And then, you know, gosh, almost two years later, I was still working on it. And um, which is sort of lucky that there was a huge break in the case. And it was thanks to this new technique. I don't think it's just a stretch to call it revolutionary new forensic technique that involves genetic genealogy and and the DNA databases that millions of people sign up for, like through 23andMe and Ancestry.com. And the really remarkable things that can be done with, with that, with that, with that science. Um, I've learned so much about that. Did you know that you probably have more than 5,000 fifth cousins? <laughs> <laughs> At that point, is it even worth calling them cousins anymore? Well, it is now because <laughs> now they can use those fifth cousins to find you if you ever kill someone. That's... And leave your DNA at a crime scene. Yeah. I so, will remember that. Yeah. <laughs> you may need to. Jotting it down yeah. right now. And and so it's a you know, this new technique is like for any any criminal case that like a murder case that where there's DNA of a suspect that they haven't been able to match, like suddenly there's hope where there isn't any more. And so all these cold cases, many of them famous, are now being like dusted off and thrown over to genealogists. So it's this, it's this really fascinating intersection of of a science and a hobby, really, genealogy. They're now like detectives' favorite people are genealogists. So do you think it's actually fair to put this in the true crime category? Well, I, you, I think it depends on the episode. I think the first two episodes are very true crime. And then... There's an episode all about isotopes. <laughs> <laughs> so hang in there, folks. Yeah, so we may be losing and gaining, you know, audience members at each turn. But, <laughs> I mean, that's that's what kept me interested. Um, and I, you know, 
at the I, maybe I shouldn't say this as the host of the, the podcast, but I'm personally not that drawn to true crime stories in and of themselves. I'm not the type of person who would listen, let alone make one, just on that alone. Um, so it it really is about the the way this case has pushed the envelope of forensic science and what that means for not i mean the implications are not just about this case it's about every every criminal case where dna is involved from now on i mean if people heard about the news of the golden state killer that was a direct result of the case in bear brook the investigators on the golden state killer case were inspired by the technique first used here and so now it's a it's a whole new ball game and it's all about what the science is capable of and and whether or not we should use that and at what cost perhaps to our own genetic privacy. So if you're not hooked now, I don't know what will. <laughs> <laughs> but so so how can people find it? Bearbrookpodcast.org or wherever you find your podcasts. If you're listening to Outside In, you probably know how to do that, hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> okay. Cool. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, thank you. You know those 80s movies where a bunch of kids wander the neighborhood on bicycles and then stumble into a mystery? This story starts kind of like that. You know, growing up, there was probably, you know, a good two or three dozen kids that lived in the park, and we just roamed the place like we owned the place. That's Jesse Morgan. In the movie version of this story, he'd probably be the leader of the group. The scrappy one, the Corey Feldman. The way that the trailer parks work, I mean, there's a lot of people that come in and go out. I mean, I was one of the few kids that moved in when I was two and moved out when I was 18. In the summer of 1985, Jesse was 11 years old. It was the year the Nintendo came to North America. New Coke hit the shelves, and Calvin and Hobbes started running in newspapers. That year, Jesse and his friends came up with a game. It was basically hide-and-seek, except the seeker rode around on a four-wheeler. All the kids would hide, and the last one that got found would be able to ride the four-wheeler, just do that over and over, and we, we'd play, we played all summer long. The trailer park where Jesse grew up, it's in a town so small that half of its main street is technically in another village. And right next to the trailer park, covering more than half of the entire town, is 15 square miles of tall red pines and swampy, tangled forest. Bear Brook State Park. We were able to roam because we weren't in, in a city. You know, we weren't, my parents weren't worried so much about me because they just figured I was over there or over there. You know, there was only so many places to go when we were kids. And one day, in the middle of this game, something strange happened. Jesse was riding the four-wheeler. His friends, Scott and Keith, were supposed to be hiding. And then one of them gave himself away by yelling out. I believe it was Keith who said that he found a barrel just out in the woods. You know, there was a barrel out there. The barrel was a blue 55-gallon steel drum. It was covered up with a lid, but... Whoever closed it hadn't gotten a tight seal. Something was squeezing through underneath the top. It was a plastic bag. 
Scott and Keith both got off the four-wheeler and Keith was like trying to pull the top of the, the barrel off. And when he got the edge of the tarp off, we got hit with like this smell of like rotten milk. The kids weren't really sure what to make of this. So they did the only thing a group of 11-year-old boys could think to do. They kicked it over. When we knocked the barrel over, the top came open a little more, but we still, we didn't see into it or anything. We saw, like, something white was starting to drizzle out of the top of the barrel. And again, I'm thinking, it's rotten milk. And then, they left. They rode away on the four-wheeler without ever looking inside the barrel. That was it. So that was, we left. This is the moment where the story stops being like an 80s movie. Jesse and his friends walked away from the mystery. Had they looked inside the barrel, what they would have found were two bodies, heavily decomposed, partially dismembered. This moment in the woods is the first in a case where Every convention about how true crime stories usually unfold is upended. Where everything about how a murder investigation is supposed to work happens in reverse. Where each break in the case seems to raise more questions than it answers. It's the first clue that this story is not going to go the way you think it is. How does an entire family just go missing? This is the story of a serial killer police would come to know as the chameleon. I'm sure she fought. I have to believe that she fought. The story of victims, some of them well-remembered, some of them nameless. What grandmother let this happen, or what neighbor, or what bus driver, or, you know, I mean, where were all of you, you know? I mean, I, I, where were you, you know? And it's the story of a frustrating investigation that after decades of failure led to a forensic breakthrough that has forever changed the science of solving murders. I mean, this is the biggest step forward for solving crime since the discovery of DNA itself. This is Bear Brook. I'm Jason Moon. I am not a crime reporter, or I wasn't until I discovered this story. I first learned about the Bearbrook murders in late 2015 when I was assigned to cover a press conference about the case. I'd only been living in New Hampshire for about six months. I didn't know anything about the case. At the time, I was more concerned with covering the New Hampshire presidential primary. The week before, I was being crushed by a throng of other reporters while trying to follow Hillary Clinton down a hallway. But aside from the primary, New Hampshire is pretty quiet. There isn't the same urgency to news that there is in some other places. It's the sort of state where a rogue bear can and has dominated a news cycle. So when I learned that in 1985, bodies were discovered only 20 minutes or so from the NHPR newsroom, 
and that police still hadn't identified them 30 years later. It stuck with me. How is that possible with all of the DNA testing and modern forensic techniques? How could they not even know who the victims are? After that news conference, I filed a short story for the newsroom and went back to my usual beat. But I never forgot about the Bear Brook case. It became a kind of side project, something to look into when I wasn't sitting at a town hall meeting or covering the state legislature. And one of the first things I wanted to learn more about was the town where the bodies were found. The town where Jesse Morgan, who found the barrel as a kid, grew up. A town with a population just shy of 4,300. You got it? All right. Allenstown, New Hampshire. We were only going to be there a few years. It wasn't. And then he started the business and, you know, life went on. And before you know it. Jesse's parents, Anne and Kevin Morgan, moved to Allenstown in the 1970s into a trailer park called Bear Brook Gardens. The Morgans have been married a long time. They're not exactly finishing each other's sentences, but they do have a way of talking at the same time. I mean, the only secrets would be behind the walls of the, of, in the homes, but, yeah. you know, to socialize. And, and we things. used to have uh, neighborhood parties. You heard things. The neighborhood was always invited. And we, I would say we partied a little more than I would like my kids to. We, um, we heard things that would go around the park. That, in Bearbrook Gardens, the Morgans were the center of gravity for the community. They threw the big barbecues, had all the neighborhood kids over for sleepovers. We were all just friends. Yeah. And we helped each other. I can remember helping people cut wood. Yeah. And Eddie, I mean, on a hard you winter, would go I mean, up there to were winters the 10 below up. There was nothing in the winter. And, you know, no, none of the cars in the neighborhood would start, except for maybe one car we'd go. I remember going over to our friend's house, and that one car would start all our cars so we could all go to work. <laughs> you know, we were all just young families, and we didn't have money, <laughs> you know. The Morgans don't live in Allenstown anymore, but they remember it fondly. I think in their minds, they picture it like a postcard of country living. But that's not exactly how everyone remembers it. Ron Montpleasure was a police officer in Allenstown for 23 years. It, it was, <laughs> to describe it, it was um, on a Saturday afternoon, warm Saturday afternoon, uh, you know, people would start drinking about 10 o'clock in the morning. Ron wears a beanie. He's got a big laugh that he covers with one hand. After retiring in 2002, he opened a cleaning supply shop about 20 minutes from Allenstown. We spoke standing behind the counter of that shop, surrounded by vacuum cleaner parts and bottles of cleaning spray. Mott Pleasure enjoys talking about his days on the force. He liked being a cop. I, I think every kid in the neighborhood either wanted to be a police officer or a uh, firefighter. <laughs> and he liked Allenstown, even if it wasn't a model community. You talk about noise complaints, the country music was, was blaring. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I don't like country music. No, I, I do like country music. Uh, but but uh, uh, as, as the alcohol flew, the, the music got louder and louder, and then the calls started to come in. When the calls did come in, Mott Pleasure answered many of them on his own. Back then, there was usually only one officer on patrol in Allenstown at any given time. One cop for 20 square miles. It's a lot of area of patrol, and there's only one patrolman on it, and, and it's real, real hard to, to, to find, you know, to cover everything. That was particularly true when it came to the state park.
Bear Brook State Park. It covers more than half of Allenstown. The trailer park where Anne, Kevin, and Jesse Morgan lived hugs the northern edge of the state park. If you walked out the Morgan's back door in a straight line, it would be more than five miles before you saw another house. It's hard to capture just how dense and tangled the park is. There are some areas of Bear Brook that are easy to get to, a fly fishing pond, an archery station, a spiderweb of mountain biking trails. But most of the 15 square miles is thick and marshy. Aside from a couple of viewless hills, much of the park is flat, so you never have a good idea of where you are or where you've been. And it's wild, even for New Hampshire. Officer Montpleasure says his old police chief used to take him out into the park just for the fun of it. He used to take me to catch rattlesnakes, timber rattlesnakes. And I never believed that there were rattlesnakes in New Hampshire. And sure enough, he goes, come on, we're going to go catch some rattlesnakes. We are. (laughs) And um, sure as heck, we come back with a couple of timber rattlers. What he's trying to say is, this place is big. It's just, it's huge. It's, It's not some place that you just drive cars into. Officer Ron Montpleasure had been on the force in Allenstown for about five years, dealing mostly with drunk drivers, domestic disputes, and noise complaints. Small-town cop stuff. Until 1985. I, I was on duty. I was the officer that received the call. Oh, so you were the first? I was the first one on the scene. The call was from a hunter. Montpleasure drove out to meet him at the edge of the woods. And I met him, and he, and he said, I think you need to go up on the hill and take a look in the barrel. He says, I, I think there's, there's a body up there. Mont Pleasure remembers that the hunter looked pale. He told him to stay behind with the squad car while he headed out into the woods alone. I, knowing the area, uh, knew that a lot of people would dispose of their pets back there. Thinking nothing of us, it, ah, it's probably an animal. And it was hunting season. Somebody maybe had, you know, gotten a deer and brought the carcass out there. He struck out through the woods, first along a path, then eventually bushwhacking a bit through the scrub. The, the barrel was on the ground, and there was a bag. And when I opened the bag, well, the face was, the decomposed face was looking right at me. It was November 1985, a few months after Jesse Morgan and his friends had kicked over the barrel. Now, Officer Montpleasure was looking at that same barrel. But unlike the kids, he knew what was really inside. Allenstown police officer Ron Montpleasure found himself alone in the woods, confronted by the face of the human remains he had just discovered. The weight of the situation began to press down on him. This is major, you know. This is this is this is this isn't you know somebody parking in the fire lane. This this is we've got bodies, we've got people. Ron says his training from the police academy suddenly kicked in. He knew what to do. I'm like secure the area. He began staking out the perimeter of a crime scene. 
But aside from the barrel, there wasn't much else to see. Trees. And how exactly do you stake out a perimeter in a forest this big? How far do you stretch the police tape? Montplaisir radioed for backup. He was the only patrolman on duty, so Allenstown officers must have been called in from their homes. And even then, cops turned to local residents for help. I think I was still in bed. And uh, I, we hear a knock on the door, I get up, and it was the police. He said, Kevin, we need to deputize you to keep the press out. And he told me that they found bodies up at the pit. As Kevin Morgan put on his boots to go help the police, his wife Anne was suddenly reminded of something their son Jesse had told her a few months earlier, about a game of hide-and-seek and a barrel that they'd found in the woods. It just came to me. You know, the smell, the, you know, it came out like milk, he said. How long was the barrel lying there? How many times had people walked right by, never realizing what was out there? I just, I just knew that 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 was the one. The barrel contained two bodies. One was a woman, the other a young girl. Investigators haven't released photos of the remains, so I haven't seen them. The details they have released, though, are grim. The remains were almost entirely skeletal. They were nude. They were dismembered, apparently to fit inside the barrel. And they were wrapped in plastic, tied together with electrical wire. Their skulls revealed that they were both killed by blows to the head with a blunt instrument. Based on the level of decomposition, investigators guessed the bodies had been in the barrel from anywhere from several months to a few years. Investigators often say that in a missing persons case, the first 48 hours are the most important. That's because if you don't find the person by then, your odds of ever finding them are really small. In a murder case, the first priority is to identify the victims. Most victims know their killers. But to know who the victim knew, you have to know who the victim is. And just like in a missing persons case, if investigators don't get this part figured out, their odds of success are really small. New Hampshire State Police took the lead in the Bearbrook investigation and they immediately began by trying to ID the victims. Their working theory was that, given the ages, the victims were likely a mother and daughter. So they started searching for missing persons reports that matched. Meanwhile, the Allenstown PD started canvassing the town. Montplaisir says that's usually how crimes in Allenstown were solved. With all those neighborhood barbecues, not to mention all the drinking, gossip had a way of getting around. And he had his ways of getting it out of people. We used to call it, let's go fishing. You know, you'd make a motor vehicle stop and you knew somebody that may have known some information about a crime. My, my line was, you know any good fishing spots? And uh, they knew what I was talking about. We weren't actually going fishing, but, you know, that meant the difference between, I mean, either receiving a warning or receiving a summons or just helping me out. And there was always somebody that knew a good fishing spot. <laughs> always. Whether it was a murder or a petty theft, this is how police work went in Allenstown in 1985. 
no high-tech forensics team, no criminal psychologist coming up with a suspect profile. Just a few patrol officers like Montpleasure, rattling the bushes, hoping something would fall out. Only nothing did. And that was the first thing that, that threw me off is like, this is strange, because everybody knew everything over there. Meanwhile, the state police were having their own issues. They couldn't find any reports of a missing mother and daughter. Not in New Hampshire, not in neighboring states, not anywhere. Whoever these people were, it seemed that no one was looking for them. As the months started to roll by, police tried lots of ways to get any sort of foothold in the case. They checked the records of every elementary school in the state for some trace of the child victim. They examined five years of campground records at Bear Brook State Park. They sent out nationwide bulletins to law enforcement agencies with descriptions of the victims. They looked for matches to the adult victim in FBI databases of dental records. None of it worked. One corporal in the New Hampshire State Police called it the most frustrating case of his life. In 1986, several months after the barrel was discovered, composite sketches of the victims were made. The artists didn't have a lot to go on, just their hair and bone structure, so there was a lot of room for interpretation. But however inaccurate they may be, the sketches do manage to give the victims some measure of identity. Since no one knew what they looked like in life, seeing the drawings was kind of like seeing them for the first time. The adult victim looks tired. Her face is long, her cheeks a little gaunt. A shadow falls across her face. Detectives estimate she was in her mid to late 20s when she died. She was between 5'2 and 5'8. She had wavy, light brown hair. The girl is drawn in profile. She has a small, upturned nose. She wears a ponytail of dirty blonde hair with bangs swept across her forehead. Detectives think she was somewhere around 9 or 10 years old when she was murdered. When these sketches were released, calls started to come in. Investigators thought they might have something. But none of the tips panned out. Back in Allenstown, all anybody could do was speculate. Theories about the victims and who killed them were all over the place, ranging from organized crime to runaways and carnival workers. It seemed like everyone had a guess. I, I can't see them not being local. You know, it, it could have been someone that lived up the street from me. I always had it in my mind that it was a trucker living a double life. I don't feel that they they took them from the park, although they could have because yeah. it abutted that area. Pure speculation. I'm playing the Ouija board, but but it's my gut feeling. You, you're going to find it, I would say, within a 200, 250 mile radius of New Hampshire, I would say south, southwest. It's like irresistible for people to just start speculating. You just want to like know. Right? You want to know. As the months turned to years, investigators started to run out of ideas. To some, it seemed their best hope was to simply wait for the killer or someone who knew them to come forward on their own. In 1987, less than two years after the barrel was found, state police decided to release the victims' bodies so they could be buried. Officer Ron Montpleasure's chief, the one who'd shown him the rattlesnakes in the state park, organized the funeral. 
He told the local reporter at the time, quote, just because we don't know their names doesn't mean they don't deserve the same respect we do. Parishioners of St. John the Baptist Church in Allenstown pooled their money and paid for a gravesite at the church cemetery. A Catholic priest and a Methodist minister led a burial ceremony where the bodies were laid to rest in a single steel casket. Just a handful of town officials and reporters were there to see it. And every time I used to patrol and go by that tombstone, you know, the wheels kept on turning. Just was I on patrol that night when, when these bodies were dumped? And, I, and all the officers would think about that. When did this happen? How did I miss this? Or, you know, I mean, you start second-guessing yourself. Burying the bodies seemed like the right thing to do, especially given that two years in, the case was going nowhere. But it also must have seemed like law enforcement had given up hope. I was disappointed. All of a sudden now, the next thing I know, the town's getting together to put a headstone on these bodies. And what the hell? These, where, who are these people? For years, Jesse Morgan's parents kept the sketches of the victims pinned to their fridge. Like a lot of people in Allenstown, they'd always thought of their town as a good place. Now they struggled to reconcile that idea with what happened. It was a whole different, different world for us. You know, it was like two worlds. Like, you know, there was this evil world going on that we had no idea about, and there was this good, wholesome world that was going on with, with the rest of the, you know, with the families and the, and the children. For Jesse Morgan, who as a kid stumbled across the bodies without really knowing it, the episode changed the woods of his childhood forever. I do remember going out myself, like on rainy days or whatever, and walking around, like out there, out in the, where we never went, to see if I could find something. You know, like, is there more? Turns out, there was. In the year 2000, John Cody was a detective in the state police's major crime unit. The unit handles most of the homicides in New Hampshire, and Cody had worked a long time to make it there. By that time, 15 years had passed since the barrel in Allenstown was discovered. And that mystery was just one on a long list of the state's unsolved cases. And the way those cases were handled back then was pretty informal. Basically, what used to happen is when you got assigned to the major crime unit, you would get assigned one or two or sometimes three cold cases. And when I picked up the Allenstown case, um, I, I didn't know anything about this case. Cody was expected to work on the case basically in his free time, whenever he wasn't working an active case. But Cody says that details of the Bear Brook murders just kept gnawing at him. It's just, it's the type of case where you start reading it. You know, it's sort of like getting into an engrossing book. You start to read the first chapter and you just want to go on to the second, which makes you to go on to the third, etc. Cody decided to get a look at the evidence in person. He went to the evidence storage area where he saw the blue barrel, the plastic, the electrical wire. Clues that had been sitting idle for 15 years. I'm a very visual person, so... I decided one day, it was actually a Friday, and I said, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go see where this area is, try to, try to get an idea of what it is, what I'm looking at through words. Cody drove out to Allenstown and walked into the woods. 
He brought the case file with him as a sort of map. First, he tried to find the area where Jesse Morgan and his friends had first found the barrel as kids. He pictured the kids on the four-wheeler, the barrel in the brush. I was walking through that. I had been out there for quite a while. And then I kind of just widened my area a little bit, almost like throwing a rock into a pond. You have those concentric rings that come out. Cody ventured further and further from the spot where the barrel was found, his eyes scanning the forest floor for anything that didn't belong. It was getting late in the afternoon. The sun was sinking behind the hills. The canopy of trees overhead in Bear Brook State Park made it even darker. Cody was thinking about how he might need to go back out to his car for his flashlight. And uh, that's when I came across um, the barrel. A barrel was on its side next to a small boulder and some brush. Cody recognized it right away. He'd been looking at a barrel just like it in evidence storage a few days before. Dark blue, 55 gallons. Cody decided now was a good time to get the flashlight after all. He made his way back out to the edge of the woods, his mind racing the whole time. You know, I I think I was trying to talk myself out of it the whole way to the car going, this is definitely not what I think it is. When Cody returned with his flashlight, he shined it inside the barrel. And all he could see was some kind of plastic. And I tore the plastic away and there was something white that was shining towards me. You know, it kind of sticks out with the dark background. Um, When I looked at it, I said, "Mm, this does not look good. (laughs) It was a stunning discovery one that raised a whole new set of questions, some of them uncomfortable for police. John Cody was standing just 300 feet from where the first barrel was found a full 15 years before. Inside the second barrel were two more bodies. Bear Brook is reported and produced by me, Jason Moon. Taylor Quimby is senior producer. Editing help from Corey Princell, Todd Bookman, Lauren Chuljan, Sam Evans-Brown, Brita Green, and Annie Ropeek. The executive producer is Erica Janik. Dan Barrick is NHPR's news director. Director of content is Maureen McMurray. NHPR's digital director is Rebecca Lavoie. Photography and video by Ali Gutierrez. Graphics and interactives by Sarah Plore. Original music for this show was composed by me, Jason Moon, and Taylor Quimby. Additional music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Simple Minds. To see a timeline of the Bear Brook investigation from 1985 until 2015, go to our website, bearbrookpodcast.org. Bear Brook is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 